0: Welcome to the World Class Coaching Podcast where we promote the constant pursuit of development and focus on what really counts towards improving performance in elite sport. I'm Matt Dickens and this is episode 12. I'm really happy to say that when I started the podcast back in October 2015 I set myself a target of one per month and this episode means that I've beaten that goal for the first year already. This episode also marks a slight change to the format of the show, as I'm very happy to welcome Rob Anderson, the 40th training, into the mix. Rob will be providing segments on relevant resources, CPD and jobs, as well as some interviews in the future, as we strive to deliver more regular content. To start with, though, I recently interviewed Reese Ingram, SNC coach for the EIS, working with GB Taekwondo on how the sport has evolved since London 2012 and what they've been up to in preparation for the games in Rio later this year. Then, Rob reviews Ron free CEO strength coach and rounds up current CPD and job opportunities. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey Rhys, how are you man? Good Matt, how are you man? Yeah, very well thanks, thanks for coming on the show. No worries if we can just start by giving us a brief background of what you currently do and how you got there, that would be fantastic.
1: Yeah, no worries. So um, I'm currently a strength conditioning coach with the English Institute of Sport based up in Manchester. Um, I work with GB Taekwondo full-time. I've been here for three years now. Um, my role with them is mainly these days as a what we call a strength and reconditioning coach. Um, so Taekwondo is a, a contact sport there's, you know, we get a, a decent number of injuries. Um, and with it being technical, a technical demand on the guys as well when, when they're fighting, the sort of need to get them as back on the mat as efficiently as possible is is high. So we sort of identified last year that there was a need for really building like a, a, a rehab specialism within the, the sort of MDT. Um, so yeah, I sort of taken on that role. Working alongside a guy called Nelson Miller, who is our sort of performance conditioning coach, as we call him, but he's he also is a taekwondo coach. So he's got sports science background. Um he's been in the sport for for years and years and years and years. Um and he does a little bit of taekwondo coaching, but also supports within the SNC um coaching. So it's sort of the two of us double teaming on that. Um and then beyond that, sort of previous to my my time up here with with Taekwondo, I was based in London with the Institute um, for a year and a half or so, working with British fencing mainly, um, all the way through London games and, and a little bit afterwards, um, as well as some multi-sport, which included uh, wheelchair rugby, wheelchair tennis, um, sw- para swimming, women, um, women's rugby, women's football, a real big mix. I um, also had a little athletics group there at the time with a couple of half-decent sprinters, which was, which was a, a nice experience. Um, and yeah, prior to that, I spent a load of time working with development fencing, so the National Academy of fencing, um, worked at Hartbury College down in Gloucestershire with a guy called Owen Satterley, um, with women's rugby, modern pentathlon, and golf. Um, and then I've done internships at a few different places, so Bedford Blues, rugby, um, and Uick, as it was back then, Cardiff Met these days, um doing sort of an internship there with, with their S&C coach at the time, Di Watts. Um, from an education background-wise, I, I did my undergrad at UIC, um, Sport and Exercise Science. This was like pre-S&C uh, course days. They, they've got the S&C undergrad there now, but what didn't exist at the time. And uh, I did my strength conditioning MSC at um, Middlesex Uni back in 2009 to 2011 or so. So yeah, that's sort of me.
0: Awesome. Wait, it sounds like a great journey. Um, you mentioned that taekwondo is obviously a really highly technical sport, really technical driven as well. Um, some really highly skilled and, and extremely fast moving athletes in there. Um, if you can put it simply, what does it take to win at the highest level?
1: <laughs> so putting it simply can be a different one. Taekwondo, uh, the rules change Uh Amazingly, regularly in Taekwondo, they're always tweaking things. Partly with the desire to sort of make it a better spectacle for people to watch, and partly um, just to try and uh, clear up a few of the grey areas in some of the rulings. So things are changing all the time in what it takes to win for for a Taekwondo athlete. Um, like I said before, like the technical tactical demand is is huge on our guys, um, and our sort of physical training model is based on improving the athletes or sort of individual strengths that fit with the coach's plan for, for them on that so there's no like one plan across the whole squad it's all really individually driven as far as what does this fighter need how is this fighter g- going to go about it? what tactics are they going to use are they going to be an attacking fighter are they going to be a counter-attacking fighter um, are they going to push the pace or are they going to let the fight come to them um and what we see is that different styles win different fights depending on sort of which weight category you sit in and uh often sort of which nation you're from you can sort of identify certain nations fighting certain styles and lots of different ones can win fights um the big one for us is high section kicking the, the thing that sort of probably separates us and people take notice of the most when they watch taekwondo is this high section kicking which is basically kicking to the head um you get different points you can you can throw punches. Um, but mainly we go for kicks and you get different points then based on whether it's a straight kick to the body or the head or a turning kick to the body or the head. And the most amount of points you can get is a turning kick to the head. So our guys spend a lot of time practicing and training on, on being able to, to kick high section, kick, kick the opponent's head as, as, as well as possible. Um, so within that, there's a, there's a few clear sort of physical demands of that that asks of our guys around mobility, strength, and speed. Um, so we we really have to sort of push the guys in those areas, um, <clears throat> as well as getting them to the point where they they're able to uh, maximize their time on the mat training. Like I said before, so much my my role now is is a rehab led role, and the more time we can get the guys on the mat training taekwondo, the better. As is as in a lot of sports, so we really try and optimize the guys and 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 push guys through the Rio process and pre-ab and however you want to term it these days um, as much as possible.
0: Awesome. Hey, Mate, um, I know we had a, a fair amount of success at London 2012 and Rio is just on the horizon. Um, what are your objectives for Team GB? Um, so we've got four athletes
1: going to, to Rio, um, which is pretty much the maximum we could qualify, which is good. So we've got two girls, two guys, We've qualified the spots, so we know which weight categories are going. Um, we're we're just waiting on selections now to, to decide actually who goes. But within those weight categories, we've got you know a few people that could definitely uh, go there and medal, and, and you know even win win the whole thing. You know we've got a target from UK Sport, which is one to three medals, and so that's front of mind at all times. But we're definitely going out there to sort of to try and win all, all four. Um, you know, we had, a, we had European Championships a couple of weeks ago, which is our one other sort of major for the year, which is a good marker for the guys to see where they're at. And we got four medals overall, um, all of which were in Olympic weight categories, three with the girls, two uh, one with the guy. And, you know, a few of the others weren't far off either. So, you know, I think things are in a good place at the minute. Everyone's sort of just trying to refocus in now. But, um, yeah, I don't see why we can't go there and really push in all four categories.
0: Mate, that would be amazing. Um just, are you, are you going to Rio yourself? <laughs>
1: no, not not this time. So London was nice. It was nice pre-London because it's on your doorstep. So you get to go to that one. But as a lot of S&Cs know, your job's usually done by that time. So uh, the guys fly out on, I think it's the 5th of August. Um, they go to the holding camp in Belo Horizonte. Um, so that out there, a couple of them will do a bit of, of rehab stuff. A couple of them will do a, a little bit of like, biometrics and you know that final sort of tapering bits but on the whole that'll be a f- the final 10 days or so just to really focus in on on refining their technical stuff and making sure they don't get hurt and uh, and then they're in so yeah I miss out on this trip but to be fair I've got I've got a five month old at home so I think if I did go my missus wouldn't be too happy about it anyway so uh, it's, it saves a discussion on that front
0: <laughs> you win some, you lose some I guess <laughs> Um mate so you mentioned obviously that depending on the fighter the weight class the style the nation even um it, it's highly individualized like the tactics towards each fight just as an s c coach like how do you identify where you can have the biggest impact for that athlete or each athlete
1: so yeah um you know there's an initial process you go through when you start working in any sport um, it's the same for for anyone across like i said all sports is you know your performance modeling type type thing identifying what the the physical demands are of the sport um you know what what areas of of what it takes to win have physical influences and and how can you impact them so um you know we, we definitely go through that process at the start um the big thing especially within our setup is you know we run uh, an, an individually focused program so every athlete that I, I work with It's a fresh sheet of paper when we start a block of training, and you know their program is written solely for them. Um, And that process begins with a a discussion with the with the coach and the athlete and myself. Um, Occasionally, the the physio might be the the head of our physio team might be in there as well, just to to give his perspective on whether if they're coming back from an injury um, or anything like that. And we sort of build we we build an understanding of what that athlete is working on. Um, within their technical and tactical sessions, and where the physical training can help to underpin what they're doing in those sessions. So there may be um, a certain uh, posture or position that this athlete's trying to hit at various points. There may be that when they travel, when they're shifting, um, that the coaches notice that they're sinking a little bit, or that their back legs dragging, and maybe they need some work on on, on adductor strength or or glute strength to try and improve their the posture in those positions and, and make sure they're keeping their base of support underneath them. Um, and we really have that out and and build a, a really solid um, understanding of of what that athlete is working on and try and make sure that all, all facets of that sort of athlete's goals and objectives are built into their their S and C plan. Um, beyond that, we will obviously try and figure out if there's any measures, diagnostics that we can that we can take to sort of help inform that process and to, to try and put some sort of objective marker against how, you know we said we want to get better at this, Well, how much better do we want to get? Um, but beyond that, you know it's it, nothing set in stone with our guys and, and it's a collaborative process throughout. Um, we're constantly talking with the athletes, we're constantly talking with the coach. If there's things that need tweaking, if there's an exercise in the gym that um, we've designed to try and help them achieve that position, but perhaps the athlete feels it's not quite hitting them right, it's not quite doing doing what they were they were looking for, we'll talk it out with them. We'll try and figure out a way of improving it and 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 getting the carryover there. Um, so yeah, it's a you know it's a really sort of multidisciplinary approach to how we go about trying to program for these guys. Um, beyond that, I'd say you know just from a specific rehab setting with the guys that I have that are perhaps in a deepest stage of rehab, um, we've we've sort of built up a, a really solid um, return to, to training sort of process at this point which we have a, we'll have a next steps meeting where again we get everyone in the room, all the multidisciplinary team that are going to be involved in that athlete's rehab, we get them in the room and we, we really pose we get the athlete to pose the question you know what do I have to do? in order to return to training what do i have to do to get back on the mat Um, and they can ask that question of every person in that room and then we build out the plan where we know the criteria that they're going to have to meet during every block of their training how long we expect that block to take and what everyone's role is within that process of helping them meet that criteria so that it's really laid out and set in stone for them of like the physio is going to be helping you through this block. Do X, Y, and Z. The S and C coach or myself is going to be helping you do these things. You might be linking with our performance conditioning coach to help you with a little bit of your return to kicking and so on and so forth. So, yeah, depending on which athlete I'm working with, the, the process, the start of the process is slightly different. But the biggest thing for us is just making sure that it's it's individual. Um, it's collaborative throughout. We really talk to each other and make sure that that we're clear on on. You know, if a coach says, I want them to be stronger, well, okay, what do you mean by stronger? You know, because I I could think, I could walk away, and I've made this mistake in the past um, with other sports that I've worked with. You know, I I think I know what get stronger means, but what the technical and tactical coach's understanding of get stronger is is very different. You know, they're looking for stronger in certain uh, moves that they do within the sport or certain, uh, like I said, body positions that they're trying to achieve. If I went down the route of, well, we're going to get you stronger, so we're going to back squat you and we're going to deadlift you and we're going to do all those sort of classic big lifts, I might completely miss the mark. So we really talk it out and make sure that everyone's got eyes on throughout the whole
0: process. Mate, that's amazing. I can really see that um, there's obviously a lot of opportunity to be quite creative as a coach there, a lot of specific movement puzzles to solve um, and, and yeah, I understand that whole conundrum of like being fitter or stronger or, or having coaches say that I, I've been there several times myself, like what you interpret as an S coach to be strong or to be, or like aerobic sort of thing is often quite different to what, um, what a technical coach means when yeah, they
1: say that. Absolutely. I mean, we've got, we've got a mixed coaching team of, um, you know, some British guys, some, uh, a Korean coach, um, a guy with sort of Iranian heritage, and a Cuban coach. Um, you know their perspective on things is all slightly different. you know, and I know back when I worked with fencing we had a a mixture of coaches as well, a couple of Eastern European guys. And there was more than one occasion I'd walk away from uh, a meeting with the coaches in fencing, and I think I knew exactly what the coach wanted, and they was exactly on the same page as what I'd gone there hoping he'd say. You know really clear idea. Write my you know take my time to write my programs, and then a couple of weeks in, you realise that you know he, he doesn't he doesn't rate what you're doing at all, and it's nowhere near what what he's after. And you know it's it's a difficult lesson to learn when you when you're in the middle of it. But um yeah, hopefully we're we're not quite in that put in that position anymore. So you know I always try and make sure that I'm as clear as possible that I don't just take it as face value. Like what does strong mean? What does flexible mean? What does you know what do you mean by faster? What do you mean by this? Especially as a lot of the time, you know, it might be that actually they think they want strength, but actually what the athlete needs is a greater range, greater mobility in order to achieve that position before you can even get to strength. Or they think they want speed, but they haven't got the underpinning sort of strength in those positions to even, you know, think about the velocity element of, of what you're trying to do. And so you, you need to then have that conversation with them and manage expectations of, how long it's going to take in order for you to to sort of realize the physical outcome that they're, that they're hoping to achieve with that athlete? That it's not we're going to put you through a four week speed block and you know suddenly you're going to be doing exactly what the coach wants you. Like actually, now we need to go and spend some time and get you strong first, and then we can build in some speed power stuff, and then you might start seeing what you're after. You know, but it's going to take longer than you you currently think it's going to take.
0: Yeah, exactly. I've had exactly the the same conversations and. Where people have told me that they need to be stronger, um, and I think, wow, like, this guy's he's, he's fucking strong already. He can generate a lot of force. But like, what they really mean is that he needs to be stable in that position to be able to apply that force. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so it's it's a really really interesting topic because providing if that communication isn't as clear as possible, then you'll you'll go off on, on the wrong track.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Um, mate, I know you mentioned to me off air that the the game or the sport itself has evolved quite a lot since the last games. Um, have there been any just general themes for physical development and if you could tell us a little bit about how the sport has changed since London 2012 um, up until now?
1: Yeah, so um, it's interesting because Neil Parsley, who was the main SC through to London, has been sort of back about here recently. I've been chatting to him a bit and we were reflecting on how different things are now to, to when he was coaching the, the squad and how different, not only the way we schedule the week and everything else, but also just what we're looking for as far as what we're trying to develop in our athletes has changed. The, you know, one major thing is that the, the competition calendar has become extremely congested. Um, so I joined Taekwondo in uh, June 2013, um, pretty much just as they went off to the world championships um that year uh up until then most of our guys would fight maybe half a dozen times a year if they were having a really busy year um nowadays they could do half a dozen competitions in the space of sort of maybe 4 months um you know there's there's a lot more open competitions um they've introduced what's called the grand, uh, grand prix series so it used to be just one major a year worlds or the Europeans or the Olympics there's now a Grand Prix series at the end of the year which is three major competitions with the top 30 involved in the world um, 30 32 involved and then um, a Grand Prix final uh, and so there's a you know that added in plus now there's a really big drive to try and earn as many points as you can and go to as many competitions as you can in order to uh, get yourself into those Grand Prix and sort of be in it to win it sort of thing so you know that's one big challenge that's been thrown away um the other aspect is that uh that world championships we suddenly saw some freaks coming out of the uh the woodwork um they brought in the rule about more more points for headshots pre-london um and so you know a couple of guys that were very capable at kicking to the head did well in london and then slowly the rest of the world sort of figured out actually one way to go about doing it is just to get really tall and have to really have really long legs. And so we had, you know, 80 kilo male fighters turning up who were about seven foot tall at the at World Championships. And, you know, it, it changed the game massively. So, um, you know, whereas we used to do a lot of uh, movement, we call the movement sessions, basically speed agility sessions where we, we you know, we'd, We've moved the guys over over sort of eight meter distances because the the rings about eight meters, you know we so we do speed agility drills that covered big distances for a type no fighter, um, you know real elaborate, all those sorts of things. We've had to come right away from that because it's now so much about your ability to control your, your distance from the opposition fighter. You know are you have you got longer leg length than him or her? And in that case, does that mean that you have to be careful about going? in the middle distance, as we call it. So within that sort of range that you can get scored on and you need to pick your shots or let the person run on to you. And everything's done over a sort of a one to two meter distance these days. So we'll still do um, movement stuff, but the way those drills look has completely changed. Um, and then there's also just that fact that we can never get too far away from being competition ready. You know, they used to have general, fa- general blocks with the guys that would be... I think twelve weeks is some some of the ones I've seen that I've seen back on the old schedules, and you know it would be a real classical approach of, you know, general training, high volume, build the intensity and drop the volume over time. You know, put them in a real big hole, then go into a sort of specific intermediate block where they'd start to turn some of the the harder work they'd done in the general block into to more uh, fast specific type or no movements, and then they'd have their competition block. Whereas now we have We're in general phase right now. It started two weeks ago and it ends in two and a half weeks time. Um, So it's, you know, it's a really short one this time. We had another one um, in January, February and an eight week block for us there. And that was, you know, a really long general block for us. We haven't had one of those in a a couple of years. And we now have competition blocks that will last, uh, you know, anywhere from three to four or five months of the year. Um, and we have to keep the guys able to, you know, some people might go to a competition a week, every week for, you know, two to three weeks or every other week. Um, so we can never allow people to get too far away from being being competition ready. Um, so that is around understanding that speed power stuff stays within your program year round. Um, <clears throat>
0: Uh, so, sorry about that, Rhys. Um, you said that obviously speed, power stuff um, comes, This is to in the programme all year round uh, when no, we no. lost you. If you could just pick up from there, that would be great.
1: Yeah, no worries. Um, and, yeah, you know, same with sort of strength work, whereas historically they used to have, you know, blocks in general training training where they really push strength and then they back off it for a while. During the, the specific and competition blocks, we can't, you know, again, we can't afford to do that. We have having to to push strength stuff all the way through the year and you know it's a classic sort of concurrent training model where you've got your pie chart and at any one point in time each portion of that pie is slightly different size but there's probably no point in the year where you know there's there's not a portion that's devoted to strength, devoted to speed, devoted to power um, and all those things. the other big, the other big thing for us has been uh, we've got this, we've got a new training centre opened um, at the well, the very end of last year, officially opened the start of this year. So we used to be um, split over several different sites, and for years we used to train um, the English Institute of Sport at a gym there where we used to we used to use that for a couple of sessions a week. Taekwondo had um, a training hall uh, about a mile away from that where they did a lot of their kicking work, and then we had. Um, sort of this infamous gym that was in the, the back room of Asda in East Manchester, um, which had a few mats and platforms and things like that and we used to do a lot of our stuff out of there. Um, which was like an interesting experience. But uh we now we've now got this new training center um just down the road um devoted to taekwondo. Um so we've gone from having a training hall which had three rings, two and a half rings in it to now one which has about nine rings in it. Um, We've got our offices based over here. We've got the old Taekwondo Hall has um, been converted into the strength conditioning gym, which is phenomenal because we've now got an embarrassment of riches when it comes to space and um, sort of facilities and ability to do whatever session we, we wanna do. We're not having to compromise at any point. And also all those conversations that I mentioned earlier that, that we have with coaches, with with other support staff are able to take place you know on the minute and as as decisions are getting made we're not having to wait until we're in the in the other office to speak to a coach we're not having to pick up the phone and call them we're able to just look across the office and, and have those conversations face to face and and do it in the moment um you know if i've got an athlete and i'm not sure if they what, what i'm about to do with them is contraindicated or they've mentioned they've got a niggle to me i don't have to ring the ring the physio and hope they can do a sort of telephone diagnosis of what's going on i can actually just send them down the corridor and they can have that conversation face to face again so you know that's massively changed how we work and the dynamic in which we sort of operate in um and it's made you know the the way in which we program and coach uh you know infinitely better i'd say
0: amazing sounds like you're in a lot better position now as well Mm. yeah
1: definitely
0: hey this one's a bit of a general question um and you've Alluded to it a little bit, and, and mentioned a lot of the stuff that you do. But how do you make sure what you do in the gym transfers to what the athletes do in a fight?
1: Um, yeah, so it's an interesting one with us. You know, obviously, Taekwondo is not a—it's not a quantifiable sport. It's not you know seconds or inches type sport. Um, there's there's a huge amount of sort of subjective opinion on what makes a good fighter. What you know, what's not good. Um, the fact we've got Nelson within our sort of support team helps a lot. Um, like I said, he is a taekwondo coach originally by trade, um, and so he has a really keen understanding of of the physical demands of the sport. And me and him sit down. We obviously talk session to session and day to day, but we also sit down once every couple of weeks, just the two of us, and really hash out ideas. and And I can pick his brain; and he pick pick mine back. So we're always looking for ways in which we can optimise the carryover of what we do. Um, To the mat, uh, there are things, you know, we have done various testing and and diagnostics within the squad, and, you know, there's one or two of those that seem to correlate with performance or ranking, Um, and there's one or two of those that definitely haven't. They might give us an indication of just the basic physical capacity of that athlete, but don't really tell us whether they're going to be a better Taekwondo player or not. Um, So the biggest thing for us is actually you know, we're really lucky in that we've got this experienced coaching group. There's this seven sort of Taekwondo coaches within our setup. Um, you know, most of them are ex-athletes and certainly, you know, a couple of them have even there's one there, certainly I've coached as an SNC coach before he retired and then became a coach himself. Um, so they've got an understanding of, of what we do, and luckily, you know, the work done by Duncan French before me and Neil Parsley before him has really helped cement S C's place within the Taekwondo program. And there's an understanding that, you know, physical training and being being a better athlete is going to help you be a better Taekwondo player. And so, when we have those meetings with coaches, and and they say we want you to we, this is what we're working towards from a technical perspective. What can you do that helps them achieve that? And we put our plan together. We get a really good level of trust from the coaches um, that that we are going to implement an appropriate intervention that that helps them work towards that goal. And the coaches will subject subjectively feedback on what changes they're seeing over time. You know, it's it's rare that you can say, oh you know, that athlete has improved at this technique because Reese did something in the gym because there's there's lots of different things that are going into that any one space in time. Um, And and everyone just sort of accepts that. And as long as we're seeing change, as long as we're seeing improvement, then that's okay. Um, We're happy with that. You know, it's it's sometimes a bit fluffy. And I know there's times where I have little moments and I'll speak to some of the guys around around the Institute who will with some of these quantifiable sports, and they're listing all the numbers at me and they're, they're, they're telling me about, um, you know, they, they know that this is correlated with that, it's correlated with that. And I have uh, the odd moment every now and then where I think, God, I really wish that I could, that I could uh, hang my hat on a number as well. But you know, there's that point at which you just have to accept that that's not the world that we live in, um, and in fact, if we tried to, to force the point. I think our, a lot of our coaches and our athletes just wouldn't buy in anyway because num- numbers aren't what speaks to them. You know, technique is what speaks to them. Um, you know, how that kick looks, how it's executed, how fast it's executed is what is what speaks to them. So, you know, being able to have those conversations with them daily is really, really important. And, and there's an acceptance there that, um, you know, we're all helping a, that athlete achieve what's needed.
0: Oh, spot on! Yeah, I think that's um that's a really good concept that you've touched on. That a lot of sports do have these quantifiable variables that you can run correlations to, like um, key performance indicators. But so many like sports are technically driven; they are subjective. It is about what the coach and the athlete feels, and and I guess you've got to have a much more holistic and open minded approach to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's one of those things where. I think if you've pushed an athlete through a hard training block and they go and win a competition afterwards, it can be nice sometimes to go, like, oh, well, they've improved at this score, and, and that's why they've just done well in that competition." But I think as soon as you start taking responsibility for some of their victories, you've got to start taking responsibility for the for the competitions that don't go well as well. And uh, you know, <laughs> you find yourself on shaky ground at that point. So. You know, I think it's better to know know you're doing your bit, and actually, this is a multidisciplinary approach. Everyone's everyone's feeding into the athlete, and you know, the athlete is what is going to take that that input from you and try and realise it on the on the mat as a performance. You know, and it, it it's down to them at that point.
0: Yeah, massively. Um, I know personally, I find that the longer I spend working with a sport, the more I understand it, and my approach to the physical development will gradually evolve. Um, you've spoken how the the sport itself has evolved and a few general themes, but and I know that obviously Duncan and Neil would have left you with a really good insight as to the sport as well as your technical coaches there that you, that you work with day in day out. But how have your thoughts as a coach evolved um, to Taekwondo as you've as you've been working from the from the start in June twenty thirteen to now?
1: Yeah, I think the. Um... The biggest thing for me has been a, a change in mindset from sort of fearing the chaos that can that can be unleashed when you sort of let these guys into the gym to sort of embracing it. Uh, so when I first came in, I had this image in my head that there was like there was one way to move and there was one way to execute various drills and that our gym-based stuff had to conform to this classic SNC model that I'd learned on my masters, that you know, I'd learned through my UKCA process and, and, and all those things and actually over time watching the sport i realized more and more that that some of the like i said before that some of these speed agility drills that we were doing just weren't representative of what was happening on the mat um, they looked great if somebody came in from another you know from another sport and and watched us for a day you know the, the guys were moving fast they were moving well um but it didn't look like taekwondo um they were they were too rigid in their in their setup and like I said before, they were just done over too great a distance. Um, with the rings being eight metres across, you know, we were we were getting guys to cover the full distance with a lot of the shifting patterns. Um, and I quickly realised that it, like it's about managing your distance against the opposition. Um, and that is one or two metres space. Uh, so we had to try and create these athletes that could move over that distance very quickly, but also move from weird angles and from weird body positions and it, it couldn't just be a standing start every time um... where they've had a second to sort of prepare themselves and before they try and move as fast as possible you know they they might land off a kick um... with with one foot on the ground another foot up in the air um... sort of head height and their torso off at an angle and you know if they haven't scored that kick they might have to, to adjust themselves and get themselves in a position to either get away and prevent themselves from being scored against or to try and go for a second kick or a third kick and, and, and combo it up. So I had to really, uh, open up my coaching toolbox and allow some of these drills that we do to become a lot more chaotic. Um, so that our athletes could help come up with solutions on, on how to, on how to move and how to, how to get out of, of these obscure positions that they will find themselves in. Um, within a competition. Um, so yeah, we you know we might nowadays set up a drill where um, it's just two cones on the ground. And all we all say to the guys is, I want you to move as fast as you can between these two cones. How you do it, I don't care. Um, and so say there's a group of four of them there. The first person will, will do it in the style that they want to do it. So they might just run to the cone forward backtrack, run forward, backtrack, and because we, we we often say like touch each cone twice and then everyone else has to copy them and they'll do a couple of that. Then the next person, he figures out a way to do it and it might be a figure of eight. Everyone else copies it and then we just let that progress on, progress on and these guys will come up with some incredibly ridiculous ways of getting around these cones. Um, you know, the ways that in the past I probably would have looked at and thought something's going to go wrong here like this has got out of hand, I need to rein this back in, you know, and nobody's moving in the exact way that, you know, I was taught on my speed agility workshops back back in the day. So, you know, I need to scale this back, whereas, you know, like I said before, the reality is it happens, that happens on the on the pitch, happens on the mat. So, so allow it to happen in training um, and really quickly, one, the athletes started to enjoy a lot of those sessions a lot more. Um, I certainly enjoyed coaching them a lot more because it's quite funny seeing what some of these guys can come up with when you give them free reign. Um, and personally, I feel we've we've had better carryover in what we do. Um, I feel more comfortable when I watch the guys fight and I see them throwing a hard kick and suddenly having to move out of the way rapidly. I feel more comfortable when I see them falling because they're not in taekwondo. If you fall to the ground, you get a half a point penalty against you. So. If they are starting to tumble, again, they will, they will do some insane things at times to try and prevent themselves from hitting the deck. And that in the past would freak me out because I just see knees going all sorts, of places and everything else. And now I feel a lot more comfortable in, in what I'm seeing because I know we've challenged the guys in training in a lot of those positions. And I know that we've challenged them at speed. That It's not just been warm-ups. It's been high-intensity, high-velocity, um work around those cones or whatever the drill has been and, and you know I trust that that they've been exposed to that. It's not the first time when they step onto the mat. So I think that's been the, the biggest thing for me how things have evolved over time.
0: Hey that's amazing. Yeah you know, I love that whole explorative learning approach giving your athletes some um, control, autonomy and, and I love being creative as a coach but if you give them a chance to be creative then you always learn something as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we've we've had a decent amount of CPD when I first joined the EIS from Franz Bosch. I know a lot of the guys, you know, that listen to this will have will have heard of, or come across, or seen him speak. Um, and we've also I've been lucky enough to see um, a guy called Richard Shuttleworth, who I think is still working with the RFU at the moment, um, talk on sort of dynamic systems and 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 the ways in which he's coached various athletes. He's an Australian guy, coached various athletes. um in skill development stuff same with a guy called mark upton who's sort of quite popular on on twitter he works within the within the is these days um and we, i've spoken with him a few times just ways in which like i said you can you can embrace this chaos within the within the within the training process and allow athletes to self-organize allow them to to discover what different patterns um and it's okay and you know the the Reese Ingram of three or four years ago would have been pretty freaked out at the the prospect of that, um, you know. And I dabbled in elements of it after seeing Fran speak when I was at fencing, um, but I sort of I got much more into a lot of that that research and a lot of that that practice when I came up to, to to Manchester and working with Taekwondo. And you know, like I said, the results have been great and the buy-in from the athletes has been huge. So you know, I think we we, we try and do we try and allow a little bit of chaos within, within a lot of what we do these days. And we try not to be too prescriptive in a lot of our drills. You know, if an athlete ever comes to me these days and says, how do you want me to do this? Unless it's a snatch or a clean or a back squat, something that's high, you know, high force that I, I do want done in a certain way. To a certain extent, I will allow them to, I'll just say, you know, figure out what feels natural. If How do you want me to move between these cones? Or how do you want me to kick this, this pad? like. I don't know. You're the Taekwondo player. Like you show me how you would do it, and just let them figure it out. And it brings them into that training process as well. Um, saves you, you know. Probably is is almost lazy coaching sometimes because it allows you to say less and to do less, and allows the athlete to, to to take on some of that process, which is nice, especially when they're they're Olympic athletes. You know, these guys have been fighting at the top level for for years now. That you know they're more experienced in Taekwondo than than I am. So. You know, there's certain things that I can bring to the table and offer them that hopefully will help improve them. But on, you know, there's a hell of a lot that they can bring to the table as well. So, you know, if you get them involved in that coaching process themselves, you know, it's it's quite surprising what what starts to happen.
0: Oh yeah, massively. I mean, we could branch off onto all kinds of different routes there: self-determination theory, relatedness, autonomy. Um, but it's it's a really important concept and. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes or quite often, even like less is more. And some, like, I love a hands-on coaching approach, but sometimes the best sessions you have is when you sit back and stand in the corner of the room and let them get on with it.
1: Yeah, I think that the, the it was a real eye-opening moment for me. I was chatting to um, Ben Rosenblatt. I've been up in Manchester for about a year, and Ben, who again a lot of people know, is based down with hockey. And I was chatting to him about various things, um, coaching-related, and I, I said, "Oh, you know." I, I'm really struggling to get my head around this idea of not over coaching the speed agility stuff. We do not delivering loads and loads of, of, um, cues. I said, it's weird cause I don't do that when I'm with the Olympic lifts and I don't do that with, with strength stuff. I, you know, I let the athletes figure out. He, he just said, why, what do you feel most confident in coaching? I said, well, yeah, the Olympic lifts. That's, that's where my, most of my experiences come from in the past. Um, and he's like, well, that's probably it then. He's like, you say less because you feel more confident with it. So actually, you know, you're, you're talking to almost try and convince them that you know what you're talking about with speed agility when actually if you just let things happen and just let, let the coaching process go, then, then uh, you know, you'll probably get a better result out of it. And it was a bit of an eye-opening moment for me where I realized I thought by saying lots of things that I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. And it was probably the opposite actually, but you, know, you live and learn.
0: Yeah, it's the same in coaching as it is in doing, I think. Like, yeah, you can only focus on one thing at a time. Otherwise, the, the more you, different things you focus on, the more confusion you add and the harder it gets. Absolutely. Yeah. Mate, um, finally, last question of this uh, main chunk of the interview. Um, what's left to do before Rio to make sure you get those medals?
1: Um, so, yeah, pre-Rio, I'd say it's, it's just about consolidation of the work that's already been done earlier in the year and earlier in the cycle. Um, as I mentioned before with the Europeans, um, a couple of weeks ago, it was a real proving ground, um, of, of where our preparations at, um, you know, how are we getting things right? Is there areas that we could improve? Are there little, I don't like to say one percenters, but you know, are there, are there those little things that we can just refine between now and the games? Um, and I think based on the results we got at Euros, we were, we were mostly happy with what we saw. Um, so we've now just got to make sure that we execute that plan again effectively, um and that all those small things that we that we got right pre euros we get right again, and if there's anything that we think is missing, that we make sure that that that's covered as well <clears throat> beyond that, I think um just making sure our athletes are in a good place mentally as well as physically, you know we're not going to try something new in our s and c plans or um you know Rio plans before between now and Rio. You know we, we think we've got it right, um, but the athletes have got a huge amount of pressure building on them at this point. Um, they are very aware that Rio is down the line. Um, you know the media side of things is really starting to ramp up, um, and so we've got to make sure that as sort of support staff, we're bringing the best version of ourselves to every single session, um, and we're putting in the work to them that they they want to see from us and they expect to see from us and that our interactions with them are positive and focused on the goal. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of people asking for their time at the moment. Um, so we want to make sure that when they come into S&C, um, we make that an efficient process for them, that they're not having to, to hang around and do a two-hour session because, because we're faffing about with bits of equipment or we're chatting to, to the physio or wh- whatever else. Um, similarly, if they want to have a chat, if the athlete wants to have a chat, if they need to offload a little bit, then we kind of let them do that and we try and, you know, reframe it a little bit and get, get that positive mindset going again because, uh, you know, we we want to make sure that they've got the best opportunity to perform in Rio and, you know, it's been a long road to Rio for them and, um, you know, if they if their mindset is in the right place, we already trust that physically they're in a good place. then. There's no reason why they can't realise, you know, the opportunity that they've got there.
0: Fantastic, mate. Well, best of luck. Cheers, man. Bruce, we'll take a short break there and come back with some quickfire questions. Cool. Question time. This is the part of the show where I'll put a couple of regular questions to my guests regarding what rituals they have to optimise their performance environment, their go-to learning resources and their approach to influencing technical staff. Uh, hey Reese, welcome back. Um, got a couple of short questions for you this time. Yes, man, no worries. One, I'm a big believer in creating a positive environment and being a positive influence. Do you have any rituals or routines that ensure you're in the best state of mind prior to working with your athletes? Um... <laughs> So yeah, I've listened back to some of
1: your podcasts and I listened to to your very first one where you went through your ritual routine I was like a little bit jealous because it sounded sounded like a great start to the morning. Um, (laughs) Thanks. And I was laughing as well because I remember back in November or October, I read um, The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, which is all about, you know, getting up that little bit earlier and and making an effort to start your day right and and do a little bit of meditation, you know, a little bit of exercise, whatever it is. And I thought, that sounds like a wicked idea. That's what I need in my life. Um, so I sort of committed to doing it. And then my uh, daughter was born in December, and I realized that she didn't really give a shit about any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> and so my my, whereas I used to sort of get woken up by my 6.30 alarm, I now um, – I'm now, sat there looking at my phone, waiting for the alarm to go off, whilst I hold hold my daughter and uh wish that I'd had more sleep the night before. So, um, yeah, as far as what I do beyond that, um, you know, we I try and make sure I've tried to create myself as best a little routine as I can. Um, I have about a 45 minute drive into work from where we live, so I visit the uh the Golden Arches drive through on the way on the way into work, but. I promise only for a coffee um not for not for anything else just to have a, have a bit of coffee in the morning and get me get me going from that perspective um and I also like I've com- I committed about a year ago I committed to not listening to the radio anymore I realized that all SNC coaches we spend we spend a lot of time in the gym and there's always some awful radio station on in the background or or the athletes have put on some some like ridiculous music and I just realized, one, I was getting a bit fed up of having music me all the time, and two, um, you know, it, it was wasted space, wasted time um, that I could actually maximize. So I've sort of committed to now, on my way into work, I'll always try and listen to a podcast or a, an, an audio book um, that links with what I do. So, so it's S&C, rehab, physio type, podcast or audio book, um, just to try and start getting me in the, the state of mind of, of being in work. I, I try and mix up on the way home and listen to something that's not work-related on, on the other side as well. So that I, I I try and switch myself off from it at the end of the day. But yeah, so I'll listen to that on the way in. Um, and then I have my, my athletes, my first group's at 8 a.m. every morning. So by the time I get to work, it's usually about enough time to, to set the gym up and get going. But the the biggest thing for me is just, is just getting in that right state of mind on the way into work and not allowing myself to... Um, you know, be frustrated by by drivers cutting you up or congestion, traffic jams, things like that. I try and keep myself as, you know, as chilled out and as positive in the morning as possible. So that when I walk into the gym, that, you know, the athletes don't know that, you know, I've been up a couple of times with with my daughter or that the the traffic was was worse than ever before, or anything like that. And that actually I just step in and and we're ready to roll. Um, especially that group tends to be uh, the longer term rehab group, you know, and we've got, you know, we'll have some of those people that have been in rehab for a month or two or more. It can be a really drawn out, slow process for some of them. And, you know, no one takes up a sport because they want to do rehab. They all take a sport because they want to be kicking. So if if they're out of that kicking environment and into a rehab environment, you've got to make sure that when you step in the gym, that, that you bring the energy. Um And so it's just... I think the biggest thing for me is having that that understanding that mindset. You know, it, anyone that's worked with me before will know that I'm not a morning a morning person myself. Um, but you know, I think with those little little tweaks, little things that I've done to try and buy myself a bit of time in the morning, um, change my mindset and what what I what I take in and what I listen to on my drive and all those things, um, it's helped me to to at least uh, fake fake it enough. Um, with the athletes in front of me, and uh, and make sure that they get they get an understanding that we're here to work, and uh, you know, and that I'm there to help them get through that session. So yeah,
0: awesome. Um, just really quickly, you said fake it just then. Have you seen the Amy Cuddy's uh, TED Talk on fake it till you make it?
1: No, I've heard about it. I've heard about. It. I've not. I've not watched it yet though.
0: Uh, it's just about body language and um, how that could shape your. Mentality, as opposed to like allowing your mentality to shape your body language, sort of thing. Um, It's interesting if you're. I think I heard.
1: I think I listened to a podcast, not with her, but where they were talking about the TED talk, and yeah, some and some of the links with it, and yeah, just how you hold yourself and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I think it's definitely an element of that, and and again, you know, it, it it's really easy. A lot of those early morning sessions are conditioning sessions, so. You know metabolic conditions sessions, so you know it'd be really easy to just get the guys on a machine or something like that and and uh, switch off whilst they go through their session. But I try and make sure that we keep talking all the way through, um, that we're we're breaking up rest periods and doing little things where we we challenge them with with new little things to to keep myself on it as much as keep them on it and make sure that. You know, it's not a session that they just turn up at 8am and, and they switch off as well. You know, I'm big on having athletes know that they have to be engaged in whatever session you're putting them through. So, um, so yeah, I try and make sure that I'm engaged so that they're engaged, you know.
0: Nice. Yeah, yeah. it's all about bringing the energy. Um, that's great. I think I'll take that as a slight indication that you may listen to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Cheers. Um question number 2 as an S C coach sometimes the tough part of the job is influencing other members of the support staff. Uh, what's your approach to doing that effectively?
1: Uh I think the biggest thing for me is just open communication, transparency in, in what you're doing. Um you you hear all the time where a coach a coach sometimes will come up up to me and say oh, I was thinking of coming and watching the session this afternoon is that okay? And I sort of always get a bit frustrated with myself almost if they come and ask that question, because of course it's okay. And you know, it's a coach led program. It's, you know, it's theirs to, it's theirs to come and to check in on and audit and do whatever they want at at any space and time. But beyond that, it's, it is an open forum. It is an open environment. And those discussions that I was talking about earlier on in the, in the interview, um, like I said, it's an ongoing process. And so if they can come in the gym and and watch those sessions take place, and ask questions about what's going on. Like, I will learn from that. They will learn from that, and it, it gets us to a better place. Um, also, I think I mentioned earlier that the creation of our sort of return to play um, program um, is a really big example of how we've tried to open up the the sort of the box on what happens within within rehab and within S and S and C and S and R. Um, we've got. a a forum there where everyone is able to input into the process and know what their role is within that process know when they're going to be stepping up and doing it doing these things know when they're backing off and allowing someone else to take the lead on it um and it allows some level of accountability as well for this um so we know you know if someone needs isokinetic testing and it you know it's booked in for this day we we can Everyone's aware of that, and everyone's accountable to that, and we're all responsible for making sure it happens. Um, so that's uh, that's the really big thing for me. Um, the other the other sort of thing I take away. I, I went to a conference years ago when I first joined the IS. I went to a conference, and um, the PD of um, bobsleigh got up and and gave a talk, and he said about basically high performance sport one of the big things you need to remember is that things will change and that shit happens and you just need to, to get on with it and make it work and I think having that little element in your in your head of knowing that you're going to plan as best you can but that plan can change at any moment and, and things are going to get thrown at you that you weren't expecting that's okay, Like it's no one's fault we all now need to come up with a solution that's going to help us sort this problem out we're going to come up with a solution that that focuses on making that athlete better, um, that puts us in a, in a really, really good position to to, to support each other across the, the MDT. Um, you know, and the athlete is the focus. I think a lot of the miscommunication that you see happening is, is quite often when people lose sight of that. So, you know, keeping that front of mind all the time for me is key. Hey,
0: that's... Uh... Really sound process, but obviously with a lot of adaptability in there. So like it. Um if you can recommend just one website, newsletter, podcast, and book to other SC coaches, what would they be?
1: Um, okay, so website would be the UKCA website. I'm a little bit biased. Um I think Pete McKnight. Pete McKnight came on a little while ago and said how hey, they've been doing some work on the UKSCA website um, and I've been involved in that process and we're just starting to get to a point now where we can release sort of some regular content with interviews, coaches corner stuff, videos of previous presentations from conferences and stuff like that. And, you know, the, the goal we set ourselves straight away was to be the primary resource for people in the UK for, for s information. I think we're starting to get to a place now where where it, it really is a site that you want to go to regularly rather than a site you check in on every other month to see if there's any jobs about. Um, so yeah, bias perhaps but you can see websites, that one. Um, newsletter, the strength and conditioning research um, review that comes out, Brett Concheris and Chris Beasley's one. Um like I've been signed up to that for, for quite a while now and you know I think it's it's excellent. You know, there's there's an insane amount of information in there every month. I don't know how the guys actually churn it out. Um, And just that ability to go in and and cherry pick out a few bits that are are pertinent to what you're interested in at that moment in time and help you keep up to date with the research is is really, really valuable. Um, Podcast, I've tried to go for one that I've not heard people say on on your show before. So, um, the Coach Your Best podcast by Jeremy Boone. Um, it's It's a little gem I found um, but he's got some, he's got some really great interviews on there. Talks to, you know, likes to Nick Winkleman all the time, formerly of Exos, now in now Ireland, rugby, um, Franz Bosch stuff in there. There's a few really good, um, podcasts on there that are, are really valuable. And then finally the book, um, Never Eat Alone is my sort of out left field recommendation. It's one I read really early on in my, um, In my coaching process and probably as i was just finishing university um it's absolutely nothing to do with sport or strength and conditioning it's all about relationships and um and building building strong and valuable relationships and how you put yourself forward you know we quite often through the institute get contacted by guys who want to come and come and see what what we do come and observe some sessions spend the day up here watching what's happening chat through get career advice or anything like that, um, which like I always try and be as open as possible for, because it wasn't long ago that that, that was me, um, asking those exact same questions of people. Uh, but there's definitely good ways to go about doing that and asking those questions, and there's, there's not so good ways to go about doing that and asking those questions. Um, and that book, for me, really gave me a decent roadmap for how I could Um, build my network and how I could um, make connections with people in the industry Um, you know it it enabled me to speak to Ian Jeffries cold um, when I was just out of university and I didn't know what to do because it was hard to find work and you know he gave me some really really great advice um, which has definitely helped me get to where I am now so if I hadn't hadn't done that in the right way he may not have been as receptive and um you know it, it things might have ended up a little bit different so yeah i think that's a, a really good book if people want to uh, get into this industry and want to want to learn more about how best to sort of conduct yourself and things like that it's a, it's excellent
0: definitely race do you host many dinner parties <laughs> i'm yet to i'm yet to
1: but i do like to cook so who knows matt next time you're in the uk come up to manchester and we'll do something
0: Oh, I have dinner. Nice one. Yeah, no, I, I, have, I have read that book as it happens. <laughs> but I'll um, definitely look out for, did you say it's Jamie Boone's podcast?
1: Jer- Jeremy Boone. Jeremy, Jeremy Boone. Boone. Uh, coach your best, it's called.
0: Fantastic. I'll uh, have to look out for that and I'll put a link to it on the, on the show notes as well. Um, mate, finally, last question of the day. I won't take up too much more of your time. If you could give one piece of advice to all aspiring S&C coaches out there, what would it be? I think
1: the biggest thing for me is just is is not being uh too proud to to go out and, and do some volunteer work and do some do some work for free. Like it's it's a really like hot topic in s c at the minute. And there's there's so you know, everyone's got an opinion on it and everything else, and I'd never want someone to put themselves in like financial distress or anything like that. But I just know like when I when I was Finishing my master's, there was an opportunity to go and work with the fencing academy. And at first, we like it got put to us that we could go and work with them, but we'd have to pay our own accommodation. So it was basically like a week's experience, but it was going to cost you 100 quid, 150 quid, or whatever it was. Um, and I just decided, like, screw it, that will be my holiday for the year, like a week in Nottingham coaching fences to do sort of bodyweight lunges and squats and things like that. Like that's my summer holiday for the year. Um, living the dream. Actually what it, what it turned out was that we didn't have to pay. Like it was all, we, we, we got, you know, our accommodation stuff sorted free. So it was a week of unpaid, but a week of, of coaching a lot. Um, that led to me getting my role with fencing. Like I was, you know, one of the few people that interviewed that had, a decent amount of proper fencing coaching experience um then i got an opportunity whilst i was at Lee valley to um work with a sprinter who was based out of there that had been coming back from an injury um was talented but didn't have enough money to 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 pay for an snc coach at the time i took it as a learning opportunity you know at that point i was i just finished um from London 2012. My first session with her was the day after the closing ceremony. So, you know, I, from that respect, I've just been an SC coach at my first Olympics, it's amazing. But I'm turning up at first thing in the morning and coaching for free. And that was a relationship that lasted a co- you know, a, a couple of years. And even when I moved up to Manchester, she'd come up and and once a month and come and train with me here. And it was, you know, it was never a paid paid role. You know, and but I learned an unbelievable amount from that, it, you know. Things that I was asked in my interview for Taekwondo, I was able to to provide better answers because I'd had that coaching experience. Um, I got to understand a hell of a lot about what a, a truly, truly elite athlete who can go to the World Championships and perform is capable of doing in the gym. Um, you know, it was it was such a fantastic opportunity. But if I'd taken too strong a mindset that no, you know, I need to, I need to be paid for every bit of work that I do. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taken it on and I would have probably missed out and, you know, things again could have been very, very different. So, you know, like I said, it's a difficult one and I I completely understand when people don't want to do it, but it's the reality is it's such a competitive industry and anything you can do to get experience is going to help you. And, you know, it pays you back in other ways.
0: Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I still even try to get a bit of experience here and there. Like, it's it's nice having a full-time job working with one sport, but if there's an opportunity to work with an athlete here or there, um, just to get your head thinking about something different, different movement, different demands, um, just everything really, like, I, I completely back you up on that one.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, you can learn from every experience. If you're if you're open to it, you can learn from every experience that's out there. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know... Just taking opportunities as and when they come, and, and you know you'll always you'll always uh, get more from it than than you've given. I think.
0: Definitely. Please, <clears throat> thanks so much again for coming on the show, mate. Um, always... Where can people find you on social media and things?
1: Um, so yeah, mainly mainly Twitter. So I'm Reece, just Reese Ingram on Twitter. Um, I do have a Facebook page, Reese Ingram Strength and Performance, but I don't use it that much. The the main one is is Twitter. Um, so yeah, you, you can look me up there.
0: Nice one. Um, I'll, again, put the links up on the website and uh, chat to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Matt. Cheers, man. Cheers. The relevant resource section is where either Rob or myself will review something that we've recently read, watched or listened to with a brief discussion on how we apply what we've learned to our daily coaching practice. This episode, I'm going to review Legacy by James Kerr. 15 Lessons in Leadership and What the All Blacks Can Teach Us About the Business of Life. I read this book about a year ago and I'm very happy to revisit it. It definitely makes my top five must-reads. As the All Blacks are currently back-to-back world champions, the most successful rugby team in history, and some would say most successful sports team full stop, there is plenty we can learn from a culture that breeds success. Indeed, since rugby turned professional, New Zealand have held a win rate of over 86 percent. James Kerr asked the questions of why they're so successful how they do it and what can we learn from them so let's start with the first lesson sweep the sheds never be too big to do the small things that need to be done. This one resonates with me I'll be completely honest when I first took my role in skiing I saw myself as an SNC coach. That's what I was employed as. I trained and studied to be an SNC coach. I wanted to be an s and coach and all my experience to date was as an s and coach. I loved the gym and sports and believed my responsibilities revolved around that. Coaching movement, getting guys strong, preparing them physically in both the short and the long term. My idea happily included extra work around that. Cleaning the gym, installing equipment, travelling to competitions, you know, everything you'd expect really. At the time, I felt if I fulfilled my role, I was being a team player. But I was wrong. There was much more to it than that, and it took me a while to grasp. Being a team player, sweeping the sheds, is about doing everything you can to make the team work better. When something needs to be done, do it. It doesn't matter if it's in your job description or not. So now, I see myself as a facilitator. My role is primarily focused on physical preparation and I'd still call myself an s coach. However, it also includes the subheadings of taxi driver, chef, cleaner, counsellor, friend, motivator, ski assistant, masseuse, handyman and anything else that needs to be done to make the team work better. The next lesson is go for the gap. When you're on top of your game, change your game. We live in an ever-evolving world and I just wrote a post about adaptability, so you can read a bit more about that on the website if you're interested. Play with purpose. Ask why. I also reviewed Simon Sinek's Start With Why on the previous episode, so this one should be pretty obvious by now. But there are a few lines that really stand out, namely, better people make better all blacks. Alex Wolfe recently told me that a key motto of the EIS is that good people make good coaches. I wonder where he got that from. Pass the ball. Leaders create leaders. This is a principle my coaching has taken on a lot over the last few years as I currently take a much more autonomous approach than I used to. I believe there's a time and a place for everything and you make those decisions based on your environment and who you're working with. In the past, I've taken care of everything from completing programme sheets to putting weights away. But here, I try to give the athletes a lot more responsibility. When I arrived, they were young with a very limited training history, they had little understanding of physical training, let alone their own capabilities, and everything had been handed to them on a plate, as well as little sense of reward from hard work and a general lack of respect. They had a lot to learn. As you know, I believe athlete education is massively important. So I started with helping them learn about themselves. That meant that I prescribed reps and sets in training programmes, But encourage them to choose the loads, to learn their capacities and what they're capable of, not just in general, but on a daily basis. It's not hard for young athletes to get strong, so programming doesn't need to be fancy. If you let them choose the loads, they can learn what they can do and when to push themselves. I made sure they put all the weights away after training and kept the gym clean. And when learning open movement skills like change of direction and agility, I took much more I took a much more explorative approach, let them think about what's more efficient, faster, or better, and why. Then guided them a little towards the technical model uh, that I had in mind rather than starting there in the first place. It's not always the quickest way to learn a specific sports skill, but they can learn a lot more about themselves and still have time to ingrain quality movement patterns along the way. Very much tying into that is the next lesson of creating a learning environment. Leaders are teachers. You may have heard me mention quite often that Ashley Jones refers to himself as an educator over a coach. I really like that. No dickheads. Follow the spearhead. Embrace expectations. Aim for the highest cloud. Train to win. Practice under pressure. Keep a blue head. Control your attention. From listening comes knowledge. From knowledge comes understanding. From understanding comes wisdom and from wisdom comes well-being. I like that philosophy too. Know thyself. Keep it real. Here comes authenticity, integrity and being genuine. To know how to win, you first have to know how to lose. And for the All Blacks, to know how to lose, you first have to know who you are. We could talk about this for ages. Know your values. Be true to them. Being honest with genuine intentions is an essential prerequisite in developing meaningful relationships and trust. If integrity is a central leadership tool and everyone in the team does exactly what they say they will do, clarity, certainty, productivity and momentum are the results. Champions do extra. Find something you would die for and give your life to it. Invent your own language. Sing your world into existence. Ritualise to actualize. Create a culture. Be a good ancestor. Plant trees you'll never see. And finally, write your legacy. This is your time. The All Blacks build and draw energy from their history and traditions, and an almost spiritual connection to the Maori culture of New Zealand. You don't need that history to understand that these values, this belief system and commitment to a cause bigger than yourself just make sense. Embody these principles and it will show in your character be a good person and you'll be a good coach. Take that further. Commit to being the best person you can be and thus the best coach you can be. Some people question the name of this podcast. There's a brief story behind it. I once attended a presentation by Nick Grantham at a UKSEA conference in which he asked for everyone who wanted to be a good coach to raise their hand. Everyone did, so I played along. But I was hesitant. I wish I stuck to my instinct because I didn't want to be a good coach. I don't want to be just a good coach. I want to be an outstanding coach. And so this show is for every like minded coach who wants to be world class. I'm certainly not there yet. I'm sure very few people are. And if they are, I'd hope they're humble enough not to know it. But hopefully, this platform is just another small means to helping us get towards being world class coaches. In the future, I'm going to be collaborating on the podcast with Rob Anderson of 40th Training. That way, I hope to give you even more insight and perspectives into how another coach thinks and applies what he learns to his coaching. I hope you'll find it just as useful and look forward to hearing your feedback. Now it's time to discuss personal development. In this section, we'll highlight all upcoming CPD opportunities, as well as any jobs and internships that may be out there at the moment.
2: It's now time for the jobs, internships and CPD section. It's that time of year where jobs start to appear again, and if you head over to the UK Sport website, you can see there's quite a few on offer. Uh, There's a part-time strength and conditioning coach role at Core Sports Coaching in Farnham in Surrey. There's a strength conditioning coach role with the English Institute of Sport in Bath University for 25 to 27,000 per year. There's a strength conditioning trainee job at the University of Birmingham which looks like it could be quite interesting for a new graduate and that's for 14,000 to 15,000 pounds per year. There's two roles uh, at the Royal Ballet Company uh, in conjunction with St Mary's University looking for strength conditioning coaches. Uh, it's relatively well paid at 35,000 pounds per year. A bit of a change away from performance sport but obviously working with Uh, people under high demands in terms of their performance nonetheless, so that's an interesting opportunity there. There's also a lead sports scientist role at Hibs in Edinburgh, Uh, however it is only paying 35000 so that's pretty basic, and that's on the BASES website there. There are also a number of studentships available at the moment if you head over to the BASES site. And just to pick at the bunch at the moment, there's uh, the modelling of sprint running through the University of Bath. There's a PhD studentship on player monitoring and rugby union from Bangor University. Uh, As I said before, in terms of St Mary's, there's also a MRes in uh, sport, health and applied science studentship being based at the Royal Ballet. And there's an Irish rugby injury surveillance and prevention PhD as well. So a number of interesting opportunities there. Also on the UK sports site, there is a and Performance Sport MSC Physiotherapy Studentship. So, if you're an SNC coach uh, with an undergrad and you're looking to expand your horizons a bit into some of the rehab and physio, they're providing the MSC course fees plus a 10 grand bursary. So, that's a pretty good deal going there. In terms of internships, Blackheath Rugby Club are looking for two placements for strength and conditioning interns for up to 12 hours minimum per week. That's on the UKCA page. Uh, unpaid, but with some potential to earn. If you head over to Jump In Sport, there's some work experience placements going with the GB Rowing Team Science Department uh, based in Reading. And then finally, there's a strength and conditioning internship at St. Peter's High School, and that's coming through Proformance. So if you're familiar with them, it's obviously headed up by James Baker. He's doing some pretty fantastic work in terms of youth strength and conditioning and athletic development in the UK, obviously previously holding the Childhood Champion Conference. Finally, uh, heading into the CPD section, I am hosting a seminar on velocity-based training with Dan Baker. It's being held at Locker 27 on Thursday, June the 23rd. If you want to book your place and there are only four remaining, then please email me at com. It's £85 per person running from 10 till 2pm. There's also a fantastic opportunity to develop your uh, understanding of speed. As there's a Speedwork CPD workshop with guest speaker JB Morin. It's being held by Jonas Dodu on Monday the 27th and Tuesday the 28th of June at Lee Valley Athletic Centre. It is £250 for the full two days or £150 per day. However, there is a 20% discount for students. If you want to book your place on that, get in touch with Louise at speedworks.training to confirm your attendance. Strength Matters are also presenting the Art of Coaching 2.0 with Dan John on July the 9th and 10th. Uh, in Essex. So you can head over to realstrengthmatters.com to pick up some details on that. And then finally, the 21st Annual Congress of the European College of Sports Science is meeting from the 6th to the 9th of July in Vienna, Austria. So if you fancy a road trip that sounds like there's a pretty good CP opportunity there too. For more details head to ecss-congress.eu forward slash 2016 to get more details on that.
0: Thanks for listening to the World Class Coaching Podcast. You can catch me on Twitter at Matt Dickens SC. The show notes for each episode will be up on the blog over at purehealthpuresport.co.uk. And obviously, subscribe to the World Class Coaching Podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you prefer to listen. Keep pushing forward your development and tune in again soon.